coming up on Philosophy Talk. Challenges to free will. I'd ask you to sit down, but you're not going to anyway. And don't worry about the days. What days? That phase. What's really going to bake your noodle later on is, would you still have broken it if I hadn't said anything? Everything that happens, happens by necessity. Is there any room left for free will? Should we just give up trying and go with the predetermined flow? Can free will be reconciled with divine foreknowledge, with determinism? Is free will just an illusion? Our guest is Manuel Vargas from the University of San Francisco. Challenges to free will. Coming up on Philosophy Talk, after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. We're continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, challenges to freedom. In other words, reasons why we may not be as free to make choices as we think we are. Ken, there's a long history of philosophers who've worried about whether we're really free. And there's a, quite a long list of reasons put forward for these worries, reasons to show that we're not really free. Okay, but, but let's start with two preliminary questions. What is freedom, and why does freedom matter? I mean, you've taught this topic for, I don't know, 40 years or so, I think, John. You must have some kind of answers to those uh, two basic questions. Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? <laughs> but with tenure, I didn't really need to. No, I'm just kidding. Let's start with a little fantasy. Take yourself back, Ken, to the time when God expelled Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. They were expelled for disobeying him and eating from the apple tree. Now, suppose you travel back in time, Ken Taylor, and offer your services to Adam and Eve as a defense attorney. What would you say? Oh, wow. Well, first thing I'd say is, uh, God, I'm sorry. I take back everything I ever said about you not existing, sir. Please forgive me. And then I'd say, look, God, you created everything, including Adam and Eve. You created the apple tree and the serpent. You and you alone decided what the world was going to be like. Every detail. You're all-powerful and all-knowing. So you knew what that serpent would say to Eve, and you knew what Eve would say to Adam, and you knew how Adam would react. So how in the world, God, can you blame Adam when you created him just the way he was, as a spineless wuss who would do what his wife told him? If, if you didn't want him to eat that apple, you should have created him differently. You should have created someone who would have said, Sorry, Eve, I cannot, I will not obey God, and you, Eve, must not either. And what if God had replied to you, Ken? But... Mr. Taylor, Adam was free. He could have eaten the apple, or he could have refrained from eating the apple. It was up to him. It was his choice. He made the wrong choice, so I'm mad at him and intend to punish him and all of his descendants, including you. Well, I'd shake my boots a little bit, but I'd buck up my courage and I'd say, uh, look, God, I'm sorry, but that makes no sense. Your your holiness, your highness, your whateverness. Adam may have thought he may have thought to himself, "I can eat the apple, or I cannot eat the apple." But that thought was an illusion. No finite mortal being can do something that you, God, already knew he wouldn't do. You created Adam with a sense of freedom, but not the reality of freedom. So, sir, 
I honor, I submit it's grossly unfair, grossly unfair to punish him. You're a good defense attorney, Ken, and your response gets at the answers to the questions you ask. What we mean by freedom is the power to choose between two actions, doing something or not doing that very same thing. We not only have the thought, I can do A, and I can also refrain from doing A, but the thought is true. We really could do either one. And this is important because unless one can really choose, one really doesn't deserve to be punished for what one does. So there's the first challenge to free will. If God really knows ahead of time what we're going to do, can we really do otherwise? And if we can't, no one is really to blame for what they do, and no one should be punished for what they do, even by God. Okay, so we have some sense of what's meant by freedom and why it's important. And I think my defense of Adam was cheeky but pretty good, but I don't suppose God would have been uh, quite convinced. Well, not only God, but also a whole list of brilliant philosophers from Augustine to Leibniz to Bob Adams wouldn't think you had things quite right. But we ought to move on to a second serious challenge to free will, where the problem isn't that God knows everything, but that everything is caused, including the thoughts and decisions of human beings. In other words, can we really be free if our decisions are caused by our brain states, which are them have prior causes and so forth and so on and so on and so forth, so that ultimately our decisions were caused by events in the remote past for which we have no responsibility? What we decide to do now was really determined long before we were born. So you're talking about determinism and the view that everything we do is determined by the laws of nature and past event. Given the state of the world, say, in 1940, long before I was born, and the laws of nature, it follows inevitably that I was going to break the speed limit on my trip to the studio today, and there's nothing in the world I, and there's nothing I can do about it. I can't, I can't do anything about how the world was. I can't, do, I can't violate the laws. So I was really determined. It seemed that I could slow down, but I really couldn't slow down. So if you'd been stopped by a police officer, you might have explained all this to him uh, uh, to avoid getting a ticket. Uh, and what do you suppose he would have said, Ken? Well, if he had philosophical training, he might have said, oh, that may be, but it's equally determined that I should give you a ticket. And then he would give me the ticket. Or maybe he would have said, that doesn't matter because quantum physics tells us that determinism isn't true after all. Well, it's, it's hard to know what to say to the first thing, except uh, yes, sir. <laughs> but to the second about quantum physics, it seems like you might say this. Look, quantum physics might show there's a little leeway in the way the universe unfolds, but not a lot. It hardly shows that my speeding was the inevitable consequences of the state of my brain, which was the inevitable result of my experiences through life and the nature I was born with. So please don't give me a ticket. So freedom poses challenges to two quite different ways of uh, looking at the world. Theists have to worry about the f whether free will is compatible with God's foreknowledge, while people who go in for determinism, naturalists who believe that all we do and all, all we are is determined by the laws of nature, they have to worry about it too. It's a huge problem, Ken, but luckily we have a brilliant young philosopher, Manuel Vargas, from the University of San Francisco to help us think it through. And we'd like our listeners to help us, too. Join the conversation by calling toll-free 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, April Dembowski, visits an inner-city school to see how kids are harnessing their free will in the face of social determinism. She files this report. It's mid-morning at Bridges Academy in East Oakland. Let's get in our mindful bodies. A class of fourth graders is taking time out from fractions and grammar for a class on mindfulness. And let your eyes close again. And we're going to stay with our breath, breathing in and out. 
Kate Janke visits the class for 15 minutes a day, three days a week, for five weeks. She teaches kids to sit quietly and to pay attention to sounds, smells, tastes, and feelings. We have a, a lesson called Kindness on the Playground, talking about just really how to interact with other kids and what it feels like when we're being, you know, mean or picking on somebody else. The school hopes that by becoming more aware of themselves, kids will learn to override the urge to yell in class or hit another student. Lori Grossman helped develop the curriculum. A lot of the program is geared towards self-regulation and impulse control. And if kids can learn to control their impulses, then they're going to get in less trouble. If kids can learn to focus, then they're going to pay attention to the teacher more. This is important in inner city schools, where most kids face a future shaped by dropout rates and crime stats. Mindfulness doesn't mean problems don't exist. Mindfulness means your reaction to the problems is different. So far, Oakland administrators report less behavior problems in their classrooms. Teachers say students are more calm. Liam Cunningham is a second grader at Park Day School. He uses his breathing exercises outside class, too. When I go to sleep, it's kind of hard, so I did mindfulness, and that made me go to sleep easier. Mira Gottlieb taught her five-year-old brother some mindfulness tricks. He had this headache, and he was crying, and he was so mad, and I said, Malcolm, do you want to do mindfulness? And he said, yeah, and then after like 30 seconds, his headache stopped. When you take a breath, you change your brain chemistry. Again, Lori Grossman. The prefrontal cortex and the brainstem get integrated, and that's typically a sense of well-being when those things are integrated. Kids notice the benefits of mindfulness, not just in avoiding fights on the playground. They use it to enhance their skills, too. Soccer player Olivia Talley explains. Let's say you're the goalie and you want to concentrate on the ball, you want to do some mindfulness, to, so you don't chat and you think about if the ball is coming what way you would go where and how you would act in different positions. A lot of the kids, like Mateo Galguera, pass the mindfulness lessons on to their parents. Sometimes like my mom would come home from work and she'd be like, oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe what so-and-so did today, you know, and, uh, and sometimes I'd just be like, like in school, mom, we do this thing that's called mindfulness. And basically all you have to do is really just like sit down for a little bit and just kind of reflect on what's going on. And so she tried it and it made it a lot better. Whether it's parents resisting road rage, athletes staying focused, or kids coping with violence, taking a moment to be mindful helps people gain control over their baser instincts. For students at inner city schools, this can be the difference between ending up in jail and ending up in college. For Philosophy Talk, I'm April Domboski. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.